podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. Menners. And joining me this week, I have a returning panellist. He's a freelance cricket journalist. He's a wannabe cricket commentator. He eats, sleeps and breathes cricket. Welcome back, Gav Joshi. How are you? Hello, I'm Menners. I'm well, yes. Eats and breeds and whatever you want to call it. Yes, I do. But it's just You not... eat cricket for breakfast, don't yeah, you? Yeah, but it's just not cricket. It's other sports as well. Give me a little bit of cricket. He's all around cricket. He's all around sport tragic. And uh, we have a very special guest this week. We have a really special guest this week. He describes himself on his Twitter feed as an organic batting coach. He's also the batting and fielding coach for the Royal Challengers Bangalore in the IPL. He's the Melbourne Stars batting coach. Welcome to the show, Trent Woodhill. How are you, Trent? I'm great. Thanks, Menace. Thanks for having me. G'day, well, Dav. Yeah, welcome to the show. What is an organic batting coach? That's a good question. I just like the, the word organic. I love organic beer and uh, and as an organic lover of beer, I know that there's not a lot of things go into it and <laughs> I think with batting coaching, there shouldn't be a lot of things that go into it either. Well, Trent, you've worked with some of the great batsmen in world cricket, some of Australia's stars, some of the world stars. So we're going to have a really good chat about batting in this podcast. We're going to get into some of what makes some of the best players in the world tick. We're also hopefully going to have time to preview the much anticipated ODI series in South Africa. And if there's any time left, we'll um, get to some listener mail and preview the Matador Cup. Yeah, just before you go ahead, Menas, it's great to have Trent here. Now, I'll just roll out some names. A.B. de Villiers, Steve Smith, David Warner, Virat Kohli, Kane Williamson. I think there's only one man in this universe who's coached these people and it's absolutely wonderful to have Trent sitting here to talk about the modern art of batting. Not We know what the textbooks say about batting, but Trent really drills and it's been wonderful to ha- speak to him in the last six months and I'm sure he's going to give us really great insights. Well, that's a big Thanks rap. Again. That's a big rap. Gav's pretty hard on the yeah, coaching Yeah, but you know staff. I love my Alan Donald was <laughs> Mark pretty hard on Gav. Well, Gav, you've said it all. Let's start. On the Royal Challenges Bangalore profile in the IPL, it said that you're credited with moulding David Warner's career. So how about how, how have you influenced Warner? How have you coached him? All that sort of stuff. Okay, with, with David, it was an interesting one. We're both working at Cricket New South Wales, myself as a youth coach, and David was part of the squad. Uh, and he wasn't getting much game time, uh, as probably as a 21-year-old. And we sort of fell in together where he wanted someone to have a hit with and I had plenty of time and, and we started working together and I think um, we just fell into each other actually on, on what was needed and, and I had time with David. Mutual love of beer? Uh, yeah, at that stage, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, not now, no, it's hard to have a drink with David now. He, he's, he's nice and clean. He's on the wagon. He is, yeah. But we had, we had an eight-month period prior to his debut for Australia where – we worked together probably four or five now, times a week. Now, are you talking week. about his T20 debut? His T20 debut, yep. And listeners might remember he burst onto the scene, smashing South Africa, and he'd never played a first-class game up until that point. No, but he destroyed Tasmania twice in, in uh, the then Matador Cup uh, with, I think, 160 and a 99. Um, it, you know, and they were well past a run of ball, and, and literally the Tassie boys didn't know where to bowl to him. And that, sort of common, that was a culmination of our, our pre-season, which, which you don't get these days, which was long, which was that six to eight months. And, 
and we we developed a really natural style for him. And at the time, uh, he was told because he was short that unless he improves his play between hip and head, that he'd he'd probably struggle a little bit. He's too flashy, and we just made sure that the shots that he wanted to play, he he refined rather than changed anything, and. And he just kept growing from there. Now, what about his transition from a T20 smasher and, and being able to dominate at the short forms into a test batsman that scored 16 test centuries, is averaging almost 50 at test level? How was he able to change? And, Gabe, you, you might have some input on this one. Yeah, I, I like, I mean, even David talks about it where he talked to sort of Verinda Savak and, and you were there at, at Delhi Daredevils where he said, it's great to... It, excel in test cricket especially at the start being a a guy who can hit the ball over the top because all it's an attacking field and David still talks about that a lot but did he ever mention that to you and how that sort of started uh, to evolve his batsmanship into the sort of the longer format of the game I think from David from early on wanted to play cricket for Australia and that and that started with test cricket followed by one day as followed by t20 so the t20 came quickly so there was, you know, there was always that drive and that that want to play a longer form for Australia. If you like the way that I coach and and subconsciously at the time was my my setup was about preparation, mechanics slash execution slash technique. So I, I didn't get too far into uh, decision making and 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 how you would perform in Test cricket from from those levels. And that's where someone like Saywag was brilliant. Viru is is perhaps the best person I've ever spoken to about batting. Um, his his knowledge of it is second to none, and he was able to talk to David about where David would succeed and why, without saying to David, "If you modify your game, you'll you'll succeed." And he was the first one that said, "Don't worry about modifying your game. Don't we? Let's not even talk about that. You will perform in Test cricket if you bat the way you're batting now." And that was that was really interesting. So that gave David uh, it, it laid the seed with David. I don't think it hit home straight away. But it gave David some drive and some 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 confidence that someone like Saywag plays how he he did opening. That if David replicated that, he could go on and have a really good career. And we've seen seeing that now. Is it a simple case of just shot selection for David Warner when he goes to Test level? Just putting a couple of shots in the the kit bag that he might keep for the limited form. Is that is that sort of a simple way of judging the difference between the way he might approach different formats? So so if we talk shot selection, that's decision making. If you add technique to decision making, your decision making gets blurred. So where David succeeded really well is that he, if he's decided he's aggressive, then he, he's in really good positions. Then he can choose to play the shots he, he wants. If his decision making was poor, he still may come out in front and not get out. And that's where, where David's been strong. His record opening the batting is as good as Matthew Hayden's. And both of those guys are similar in that regard. So forget about technique, right? What's the decision I'm looking to make here? Is it an aggressive one? Um, where am I trying to hit the ball? They're things that he can repeat because he's not worried about his mechanics. The most important, I guess, transition was just prior to the Ashes summer that during the whitewash. And you worked really close with him just prior to that. What was it in David Warner's game that you felt that had to improve? It came about, um, Mickey Arthur was coach at the time and, and I, I have a lot of respect for Mickey and, and, and spent some time with Mickey talking, talking to him. But I, I had a disagreement with the way he was preparing David. Mickey's view was that if David focused on his defense, his attack would take care of itself. And it's a throwaway coaching line that I really just don't like. And he, um, he was so focused on getting his defense right. To do that, he slowed everything down. He wouldn't recognize moments where he could score. And, you know, get a ball that he usually would put away, he would let go because he was in a defensive mindset. So prior to that series, 
I wanted him to get back to being the bull, which is, which is what he is, and that's that's having a real strong presence at the crease, you know, putting the pressure back on the bowlers so that if, if they if they miss out on what they want to do, he's hitting that ball for four. What about off the field? I was having a chat with Peter Neville last week, and he was saying that Warner's really tempered down his sledging, he's really matured his approach to the game. How have you seen that coaching him and the way he approaches batting? He's he's in a really good place. He's got a he's got a fantastic family, two young kids. He's you know he he's well supported, and there's there's no need for an, for that aggressive mindset in terms of uh, in the field and sledging. And I, I'm really against it. I don't like the way the Australians play with their with their aggressive sledging. Where's Paul when you need him? We've got one panelist who's always getting stuck into the Aussies for sledging. Right. Um, well, it's just not needed. So David's in a place that he can replicate. You, you can't replicate anger because then if you're always searching for anger for preparation, then it's really hard to do that when you're in a really good place. It's like a songwriter through their 20s writing these great songs because they're, they're depressed and the, the world's a horrible place, but all of a sudden they have a million bucks in their bank account and a good they're relationship. They're so depressed. They can't, how, how do you write about those crappy songs anymore? Yeah, so David, you're right. David Warner does look in a very good place. And let's talk about another person in a very good place, Steve Smith. Now, I know you worked with Steve Smith when he was from since the age of 16. He averages over 58 in test cricket. I think sometimes forget, people, some people forget how good he actually is. He's averaging almost 60 in test cricket. It's phenomenal stuff. Better than Ponting, better than some of the great players that we've had. Greg Chappell is way ahead of them in averages and at the same stage of his career. But what is it that makes Steve Smith so good? Well, like David, they're, they're unbelievable competitors. So I always, always bracket the two together, not because I work with them, but because it's hard to come across Australians that are more competitive than these two. I reckon the last one that was, was Ponting, and before that it was Steve Waugh. And that's, that's just through my, my opinion. But So those two just don't give an inch to the opposition. Uh, and when they have that mindset, they... They, they tend to come out on top. So, you know, Stephen's average is phenomenal and there's no reason why it won't continue, but it's built around competition. Uh, and, and I guess when he gets away from that, you know, whether he's, he's looking at his technique, then it, if you're focusing on your technique, you're not competing. And I reckon that's what happened in Sri Lanka. I mean, that is a common theme around Steve Smith. Anyone you speak to that have known him from a young age, he's always been ultra competitive. He's always wanted to win and it comes through. But I think the way he bats... you. Gav? Just just going back to competitive nature, um, there's all these different types of players. And what's competitive? I know we know what it is, but just sort of behind closed doors. Are these guys who, if they feel like they're edging the ball to second slip, they go and say, how do I figure out a solution? Is that competitive? Or No, I reckon it's, it's giving 100% mind, body and soul to the next delivery whether it's a training or whether it's in a game. And that's, that's why I always, always say that Virat Kohli is just an absolute freak because success or failure, he gives 100% to the next ball. Uh, and, that's, and that's what Stephen and, and, and uh, David do. And funny enough, with those two and in Australia, there's more distractions to take you away from that because there's more coaches. More coaches, there's selection panels that, that, that can question your judgment on the next ball. Whereas um, Virat's established a way, NAB, of just giving 100% to every ball, whether it's practice or whether it's a game. I mean, that's funny because Steve Waugh used to preach that philosophy when he was batting that it was all about the next ball and not seeing past So that. not taking any names, but there are players out there who you feel are not that committed maybe batting in the net, net sometimes? Well, no, it's not about being committed. I think it's there's distracted. Okay. So And things that can distract you are bad coaching. Long travel, um, technique. 
that's what tends to be. Tends to be technique because you get into a net environment and someone's told you to adjust your stance, adjust your hands, don't have throwdowns, have the dog stick, don't have dog stick, have the bowlers. So instead of actually just, just getting into good routines around your batting, good preparation routines that allow you to repeat good movements, which then allow you to make good decisions, um, then you know in a game you, you've already trained that. And that's why commitment you know, can be, you know, as Australians we say you've got to puff your chest out more and you've got to be harder, you've got to train harder, you've got to be smarter. All those things are just irrelevant because everyone wants to do well. It's breaking that down and doing well in the next ball. I always feel that Steve Smith has the ability to play three or four shots to every ball. I mean, we've seen him play some ridiculous shots at international level, hitting full tosses from you know four feet outside off stump to behind square leg. He seems to have this uncanny ability to manipulate the ball with his hands. Is that something that you've seen or he's always had it? I think using your hands is still you have to be able to hit the ball late and you have to be able to use your whole body to be able to do that. Because as quick as your hands might seem, you're, they're not as big and strong as your, as your core muscles. And your core muscles will still react quicker than your hands. Um, what Stephen does do well is he plays really late. I don't think we've seen the best of Stephen in white ball cricket. I have in different, different stages of IPL. Or, but he, he's an immense talent. And, and because he, he looks different the way he plays, people take a while to, to realise just how good he is. But like you said, he's got options to every ball. Every ball he could hit to any part of the ground if he wanted to. How do you think he's going to balance the amount of pressure on him now, not just as a batsman but as a captain in all three formats? Do you think he's got the makeup to be able to excel and you know handle that sort of pressure for a long time? He has, but my question is to you: Should he do it? You know, we we feel this need in Australian cricket to continue on. You know, finding a captain's going to captain like Border did for eleven or twelve years. Um, you know, whether it was Ponting or War or Taylor, I, I just don't see the need. I, Having, I think that T20 captaincy has to be a rotating thing between Smith, Warner and probably Bailey or whoever that, or Finch. And they sort of, because Warner and Smith are going to be resting from T20 cricket yes, at various yep. times. So they just they can't captain the side if they're not playing. No, no they can't. So I, I think that. I reckon ideally it's a four-year cycle with captains. I think you, basically after the next World Cup, the next captain comes in and does their four-year cycle. Well, man, I've got Smith for 12 years. It's, I, I, I mean, think it's 27, too long. 27, Doesn't mean you can't do it. retire at the age of 39, 20,000 test runs, you know, 15,000 one-day runs, <laughs> a few World Cups <laughs> in the bag. Heavy in a wheelchair by then. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to put you on the spot now, Trent. You've worked with both of them. David Warner has 4,669 runs after 54 tests. He's age 29. Steve Smith has 4,099 runs, just un- just over 500 behind after 44 tests, age 27. Of those two, who do you think is going to end up with more test runs, Warner or Smith? It's a really good question. I battled with it coming <laughs> over. I'm going to find it hard to answer. But if push comes to shove, I'm going to say Warner because I think not having the captaincy – will allow him to be a little bit fresher. If you go with the 12 years, I think it, it's, it takes its toll. And the way it's set up, we still, we still provide too much to the captain. I know Ian Chappell would love us to have the captains in charge all the time. But I think if Stephen can get a, a good crew around him, and that means getting rid of Rod Marsh as a selector and just having Darren Lehman and Steve Smith pick the team, that'll be an easier way of staying fresh. Um, but I think too many distraction, distracted voices will make it hard then for him to focus. That was a well, break. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. So let's start with, I agree with you, Warner probably might edge Smith <laughs> if they both play for a long time just because Warner's going to get more opportunities in the second innings. He, he might just, but I think it's going to be a close I one. I should have gone with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Wob Marsh, 
You've just dropped a claim. You think Rod, the chief select, has got to yeah, go? I, I don't understand his position anymore. Uh, I don't know how he came to be in that position, but I, I think it's he's shown from his comments in Sri Lanka about we gave the players everything they needed to prepare well was was a horrible comment because it didn't work. So maybe he needed to look in the mirror and blame himself rather than blaming the players. Well, interesting you say that, given Rod Marsh might be old style of he's definitely old, yeah, of coaching. Recently, uh, the BCCI have actually implemented uh, a selection panel and none of the selectors are, can be over the age of 60. Now, just looking at how cricket's evolved and, you know, old times with the Jeffrey boycotts, getting your pad to the ball and so but, forth, is that something that Australia should seriously look at as well? I don't have a problem with age. don't have a pr- okay. problem with age or, or whatever you want to be, whatever you want to do, but you need to grow. You need to grow. In, and the sport's changed so much over the last 10 years. Um, and, you know, let's face it, Rod Marsh has never ha- had a position where he's coached an international team, whether he's coached in a franchise team where it demands success. He's, he's either been a selector or he's run an academy. And my, my experience with academies are players do well, it's the coach. Players do badly, it's the player. That's reversed around international cricket and franchise cricket. He's, he's never done well in India. Um, so if that's the case, you know, how, how is he picking the team? Let's put the onus back on the head coach, Darren Lehman, and the, the captain to come across the 11 or the 15 touring, touring squad that you need to do well. And that way, there's, there's less distraction around conversation. What about Darren Lehman have having dual roles as coach and selector? Now, I'm coming to the, the, the thought that I don't know if it's productive having a head coach that's also a selector. I understand they're going to probably sit at the table and have a chat with the selectors, but if you're a, co- if you're a player, do you want to go to a coach who's also a selector with a problem? Well, what do you think about that? Well, I just think the selection panel now is, is gone. Listening to the ECB talk after the James Anderson non-selection for Lords, Yep. Um, you know, the Bayless wanted him, the the captain wanted him, and he wasn't picked because selectors said he wasn't ready. Well, to me, you know, Trevor Bayless will have a greater knowledge of whether he was ready or not than the selectors. So if we've been the selection altogether and then it's up to the coach to establish a pathway to pick his teams, I think the, the pressure's got to be on the coach to, to be able to say, I made this decision. We saw with Brad Haddon and Peter Neville at Lords. You know, where who who took the fall for, for Haddon's non-selection? Was it Marshall Lehman? We don't really know to this day. I think the the challenge probably is is you've got That's so going many... to come up later. Don't, I've got a okay. special email for that one. Uh, right. So many games going around as yeah. well. So the selectors have to play some sort of role. Like there's a sort of a U tour or a, a tour. Yeah. I was just up here and watching the likes of sort of Chris Tremaine. Who's actually watching these guys? Like how can Darren Lehman pick these guys if? He's not watching them. True. But my concern is this. The message I'm getting is that our selectors are comment, commentating about how players are preparing. So Marsh commented about preparation. They shouldn't do that. Rod Marsh is not qualified to talk about preparation well, of, of players. You don't throw your own team under the bus. You don't go before the second no, he, test. He oh, they've had loads of preparation. He they should be winning. Yeah. You say nothing or you support them. Exactly. So so I think I think the days of, of the player not wanting to talk to the coach about about their preparation are long gone. I I have no doubt that Lehman you know, has that relationship where he can he can talk to his players because they're, they're already on tour. But that's where your, your next your next group of coaches become really important. So we need to break it up. The stereotypical batting coach. I, I'm I'm not the one to talk to about day four batting in a test match. But I can get your preparation right. I can get your mechanics right so that you're in control, so that you can then have those discussion with senior players and your co- and your coaches about what what you need to do. But the selectors need to be taken out because they play executioner. 
They don't they don't play help because you're not going to go and talk to them about your game. There's no way that you're going to go up and talk to Rod Marsh about how you're not comfortable batting in Sri Lanka because you won't be on the Indian tour. So he done, he then does not feel feel a, a need for Australian cricket. Woodhill says Marsh out. You Done. heard it here. Now let's <laughs> let's let's take a journey over to the IPL Royal Challengers Bangalore. Your head batting coach there. Uh, I mean, this is some of the people you've worked with: there. Virat Kohli, AB de Villiers, Chris Gale, Travis Head, Shane Watson. First thing I want to ask you: How do you manage working with their egos? No, there's no egos. It's unbelievable. Not that, even Chris no, Gale. No, Chris Gale is sensational. Yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough about my IPL time. I've done eight years now. Um, you know, I've worked worked at Delhi with with people like Kevin Peterson and Fernando Saywag, David Warner. And what I find about franchise cricket, there's a purpose to it. It's about picking the best team and winning. And that's that's makes life so imp- simple because my job is purely about making sure they're prepared and happy. So, which of them in particular are good listeners? All, all of them. All of them. Yeah, I, I've I'm blessed. I'm, I really am lucky to work with those guys. That, um, then you add Watto into the you know, Davies, Coley, Gal mix t- to this year. It, it was just amazing. I, I suppose you'd have to speak to Travis Head as someone young coming into that environment. But they are so so easy with their time and their thoughts, and they they prepare so professionally that it makes my job a lot easier to make sure that um, everybody's in a good place. Why is it, Trent? And I always get a lot of flack whenever I'm on here, and I mention the word IPL, and you know IPL we're almost in the Australian environment, we look at that and say it's the cause of every single world disaster from terrorism <laughs> to financial crisis to our batsmen not being able to play spin bowling or seam bowling. It's because of the IPL. What causes that mindset and how incorrect is that? It's very incorrect. I think it's jealousy a lot of the time. The IPL is the, is the world's greatest cricket tournament. It's just an amazing... Amazing experience. You've experienced yourself, Gavin. It's 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 actually taking cricket well into the twenty first century, rather than than holding it back or, or taking away from it. It's it's it, yeah, it's opened the world up to the way other people prepare. Um, AB De Villiers batting with Virat Kohli. Uh, who'd have thought that? Well, I think ago. as well, culturally, you know, we used to see a great divide between the cricketing nations. They would never share a dressing room together. You can imagine the Australian and the West Indies teams used to hate each other going back in the day. But now there's some of their teammates. You can see sort of a sharing of cricket intelligence almost. Well, it's, it's made for better people. You know, to have that us v them nature, that's great, but but just don't be a dick about it. Yeah. So that's that's the important thing. And and now seeing seeing that the different nationalities work together, it's just amazing. I, I mean, I can't speak highly enough about about those Bangalore players and and the franchise itself are, are all about good people and developing a good product. Well, let's let's talk about Virat Kohli for a second. He scored in the last IPL nine hundred and seventy three runs in 16 T20 matches. And, I mean, it was a phenomenal run. What are the, some of the secrets to his success in T20 cricket? I touched on them earlier that, that he, he's an absolute amazing athlete. He was a lot stronger this season than he was last season, and that's a commitment to, to his off-field um, you know, training regime, his diet, you know, his, his, his state of mind. He's just an amazing human being. For someone to be that famous in his country and that population and for what he, he does every day... I, if I lost my job tomorrow with RCB, I'd still I'd still rank Virat Kohli as probably the best cricketer I've I've worked with. You talked about sort of Virat, who's come from you know subcontinental background. Then you got some like Steve Smith, AB De Villiers, who've come and played different sports growing up. How much of that is an advantage, especially in modern day cricket, where it's sort of a little bit more hand eye coordination and 
technique in terms of sort of feet movement and you know all those kinds of things are sort of just been pushed aside for a while now. Well, I think the I think the beauty of um of the Indian Indian uh, way and the Indian batsmen is that they're not overcoached. Um, there's an article written by Ed Smith who joined us at Bangalore, and you know, he, we spoke a lot about how how these players because there's so many of them, there's so many Indian players, they don't have access to bad coaching. So so someone like in Australia, the, the players that play. The ones that do get to play other sports, they're lucky because they they actually develop other hand-eye coordination abilities. The young cricketer in Australia now that's coached from a young age and only plays cricket, I reckon unless they fall on their feet and they have a good coach, they're going to struggle to break through. What about A.B. De Villiers, another one of the stars at Bangalore, one of my personal favourite players? For me, he's more like, say, Steve Smith than Virat Kohli, where he just seems to have this amazing hand-eye coordination. He seems to be able to play different shots to the same ball. He's, he's got the ability to play those flicks where he just plays the ball literally an inch in front of the stumps. Uh, what are some of the, the things about A.B. De Villiers that makes him tick? Uh, so grounded, wonderful family as well, uh, the thing about AB is that he's just trying to make sure he makes impact uh, with the with the ball at the same place all the time, which then allows him the middle of the bat. Well, yeah, that's that's what it tends <laughs> to be if, you're, if, you're, if you're the West Indies are bowling to him. Um, but he's he trains that, so he he trains in the nets to make sure he's repeating good things. And that's we, we talk about T Twenty cricket; it's not that much different to Test cricket, and it shouldn't be. It's just consistently repeating good good things. And and when we get away from that in our preparation then you don't have a chance to be as good as someone like AB. Speaking about preparations, I've seen um, Trenton work with AB this year where they went to the net session and I thought, hang on, I'm going to have a look at this, how AB bats. And AB didn't pull out a bat. He pulled out a stump. And here he is, Trenton, who's throwing balls at him and he's playing with the stump. Works for Don Bradman. Is that the preparation you mean? Like taking your game to the extra? Well, it's, it's, it's about then what he's, his focus is making sure he watches the ball first and foremost. Uh, and then it's playing the ball late under his eyes at a at a high tempo. Um, so that's why he'll you know, sometimes he'll use a stump to make sure that he's he's making impact in the middle of the bat. And then he'll he'll go to his bat and he, he's always just looking to make sure that he's he's being able to repeat what he didn't successfully in the match before to do that in the next the next match. Comes across as a good bloke. Fantastic AB. guy. Yeah. Don't say that about many South Africans. Now, <laughs> the, the, the South Africans are a fantastic bunch. They are so easy to work with. I know. They're probably a bit like the Aussies. I think that's why we clash so headedly on the field. I mean, <laughs> Dale Stane comes across as a pork chop, but you hear him talking and he's a great Follow bloke. him on Twitter. Dale Stane, if you're going to follow one cricketer on Twitter, follow Dale Stane. <laughs> now, Travis Head has made quite an impression since his elevation to the Australian side. You worked with him in India. How does he compare to other players you've worked with at the same age? Yeah, he's he's an interesting one. He's uh, he's got a lot of talent. I think where Travis might just pip some of the other ones at the same age is that Travis is is okay with hitting the ball over the f- fence in the same area comp- uh, repeatedly. I think it, young young cricketers in Australia, they it's almost like they hit the ball inside out over cover for six, then the next ball can't go there. It's got to go somewhere else. Travis likes batting, so that's that's might sound a little bit funny, but but Travis because he likes batting and he's he's not uncomfortable with doing the same thing over and over again, I think he, he could be a future superstar. And what about his maturity levels? I mean, he was captain of South Australia last year, the youngest ever captain of yep. South Australia. Yeah, and that's not needed. Why, why, why do you need to do that? Why do you need to be 21 and captain your state? You don't think they should nah. be giving him the captaincy? No. no. But, it, okay, so that aside, though, it indicates that he must have quite a head on his shoulders. Have, have yeah. you seen that working Yeah, it does. Him? Yeah, he does. Yeah, but More so than other people his no, age? Or? No, no. 
Now, he's got good leadership skills, but his leadership skills are no different to Kane Richardson or Adam Zampa, um, two guys of a similar age from South Australia. I, I just don't see this need around captaincy. I see a different... I think you need to be the best captain of yourself, and once you learn that, opportunities to lead will happen naturally. Um, so I don't, I don't see that need on someone that age because... And we'll never know this. We don't know how much it's holding his batting back. You could argue good season, it's actually propelling it forward, but we won't know that because he's... You know, he's captain from a young age. And I think Cameron White was the, la- the last person to do that. And all of a sudden, you, be- you get known as a-, a good leader when in cricket, it's about output. You should be known as a good batsman first and then leadership qualities will follow. I mean, there is practically a time pressure that comes to captaincy that you're doing things that a captain has to do. You're not working on your own game. So yeah. I guess taking that time away from a young player, as you say, could be dangerous. I, I think so. I think young people need to be young people. But there's a, there's a pressure in Australian cricket for young people to be you know, married with two kids at 21. Uh, you know, I think I think Did Gav Gav's still working on that one? <laughs> How old are you? Get 41. <laughs> I, I just I don't see that I don't see the need. I, it's just in my experience over the last 10 years that that players are allowed to grow um, at their rate and and develop into good leaders themselves and grow their games and grow their their personalities. Uh, they're a lot more grounded than the ones that that are thrust into spotlight with in terms of um, you know leadership skills excellent point now before we move on to some of the players you've worked with at the melbourne stars i want to talk about this notion that seems to creep up as you sort of touched on before gav when especially with the performance of test sides away from home we've seen a spate of batting collapses not just with australia but it seems to be an epidemic that when test sides get in trouble away from home they're, they're gone before you know in a session or two and then the, the common thread from that is that it's a result of t20 cricket nullifying techniques and defence, uh, what do you think? Uh, look, it's, it's got to come down to, to a lot of bad coaching as well. I think that the teams that do, way, uh, do well at home, you need to work out why they do well at home. But the, 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 nature, the very nature is, I think, with the Australian team going to Sri Lanka, they didn't work out what they did well at home. They did, worked out what they did poorly away from home. And you could say, well, that's good business. Well, well no, grow what's good. Don't don't. Uh, try well, I, don't, I don't know. I sort of think in the other sense. I think the part of the problem with two, Australia's tour in Sri Lanka was they were too gung ho. They were too aggressive. They thought, you know, we've been scoring runs at home against New Zealand. Everyone's in good form. We'll just go out there and we'll take it to the Sri Lankan bowlers. Where, I mean, if you look at here, Adam Gilchrist talking about their success on the subcontinent, they realised that you had to be more negative away from home because you're playing in someone else's backyard where they're naturally okay, that's, a different, that's a different point so so you you have to respect the opposition the Australians didn't respect the opposition but once again it came down to to uh, you know upper management not not giving that respect that, that's I, what flows yeah, down I didn't think it, they were willing to grind it out the Australians well, that's what I well, think well yeah, they weren't willing to respect their opposition well I yeah. think uh, I mean Fred Probably touched so we're on. We're saying it. the same thing. And and mm. speaking about the home conditions, here we are. I think when we went to Sri Lanka, we're like, "Yep, hard new ball is the best time to play some shots." Now, Joe Burns' classic example: he comes out second t- uh, test match, first innings, sees the ball short, and he pulls it straight to square leg. Now, to me, first ball of the match doesn't matter if he's playing at the Gabba or whatever. He's going to let that go in Australia. But suddenly, someone's got new ball. Got to score as much as you, you can. Right. And, that was, and this, that was the problem. They were all saying, oh, there's a ball with your name on it. Now, you're a coach, Trent. Do you ever say to a batsman before he goes out, look, a ball's going to have your name on it today, so just do, do all right until you and, get and one? Just, I mean, sorry, it's not a good Just good before attitude. you get Trent's opinion, same thing with David Warner. He batted the best in that last innings because they seemed to be – he batted naturally. It was – if he sees the ball, he hits it. If he doesn't, 
He doesn't. So, so when he got bowled around his legs, though, that was a classic case of being too defensive. Rather than, you know, he's off spinner bowling over the wicket, he should still look to use his bat. But you become, you know, you become caught up in the situation of the game. I think teams aren't respecting opposition teams enough when they go into their backyard because the rankings might say Australia's number one, Sri Lanka's number nine. You know, we should we should really steamroll these. We've got two big quicks. They're going to go through them. Well, we know that's not the case because the stats say it's not the case. So I think it, it, it's it's working out who's been successful. So next trip to, is to India. What teams have done well over there? I was I was part of the coaching staff in 2010. We went to India for three tests. We drew the first two tests, and we which team were you with? Uh, New Zealand. New Zealand. Yep. And our 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 data is that we didn't we didn't become emotional about India or emotional about ourselves. That we've Got the facts. The facts said that that still 58% of the wickets taken in India were, were by seam bowlers. That was when Zahi Khan was, was still around at his peak. But what they, they would do is they don't have them LBW or bowled. So that means they targeted the stumps a lot. So then from a batting perspective, you switch that round, that means you have to protect your stumps. Mm-hmm. How do you protect your stumps? I'm not going to tell you to be attacking or defensive, but how, you know if you drive well or if you backward drive well, if you pull well, and that's how you protect your stumps, do it. And, and so that's, just, that's the information that you needed. So we did really well the first two tests, had two, two really good draws. Then we lost the third test in Nagpur because it spun. But our mindset changed as well as soon as it spun. So it's dealing with how, how your mindset changes. So some are ultra-aggressive and, and we say they don't respect. The others are ultra-negative. But, but a lot of those decisions in Sri Lanka were LBW or bold. So if, you, if you're missing straight balls, where's your thinking at? Well, it's a classic example. I'm just watching the test match, which is going on now between India and New Zealand. And the best batsman there is Luke Ronke. He got a really rough decision, but he's just playing like what Luke Ronke, I saw him at test debut in Headingley where the ball seemed around and still got 88 of like 80 balls, still attacking mindset. And that's how he's doing it again. So it's that clear mindset that's so important, isn't it? It is. And the next stage of that is picking players with clear mindsets to tour. And that's that's where the, the old mentality, which Mike Hussey likes, of just pick your best six batsmen, they'll cope all around the world. I think that's long gone. I think now that the results suggest that you have to pick pick player, different players for certain tours. I think the last tour to Sri Lanka certainly yeah. put pay to that theory. So in a, in a yes or no answer, you're saying no, T20 cricket is not to blame. T20 is saving cricket. There we go. Now let's move to the Melbourne Stars now. And one of these players who could go to India is a, a specialist spin batsman. I'm talking about Peter Hanscom. Worked for him at, at the Big Bash. Is he that good player of spin bowling? He, he is the third batsman pick behind Smith and Warner. Has to be. And, and what is it the way he plays spin bowling? Is it his footwork? Does he play the ball late? I think it's the fact that he's just not bothered by it. Pete is a really strong individual. He's uh, very relaxed about his mechanics, his technique. So he's not going to compromise his position around his mechanics. Um, so what that allows him to do is learn really quickly. So around decision making. So he he will then be able to read what needs to, what he needs to do to succeed. So instead of saying no, you need to have softer hands or you need a wider stance, Pete will figure out whether he needs to sweep, whether he needs to to dab cut, whether he needs to use his feet, or from a from a mental base that's stronger. Than, than the batsman outside of Smith & Warner for Sri Lanka. All right, another player that you work with at the Stars, Marcus Stoinis. Yeah, similar to Pete, they, they're very strong characters, so they, that allows them to, um, to process things really well. Could he play the Mitch Marsh role Definitely. at test level if Marsh Definitely. doesn't kick on? Has he got yep. the potential? He has indeed. Yep. Now, my reading of Stoinis is he looks more like a 
top order batsman almost like he could bat in the top four or five in a test lineup down the track is he, is he good seem to have that makeup or yeah definitely I, I think he's someone that can bat top four for for Australia but I, I'd have Stoinis Marsh and Hanscom in that group I think I think you know Marsh is at the moment is a bowler who bats bats and bats pretty well Stoinis is a batter who bowls bowls pretty well and it's coming down to that line of thinking that you don't have to have Keith Miller. Hanscom's a keeper that bats pretty yeah, well. well he, he, the thing is, he keep, it just doesn't bother him. Yeah. And and you have a look at Hanscom's keeping. He's got his own style and it, it works. So he's not trying to be technically correct. And that's that's the phrase we need to get away from because what is technically correct? Technically correct is only if somebody is succeeding. Yeah, scoring runs is correct. That's that's technique. <laughs> and we'll leave. We'll we'll wrap this little chat up with Glenn Maxwell. You worked closely with him at the Stars, tortured genius, freak of nature. He divides cricket in this country like no other character. Uh, but my reading is, and I was saying last week, he seems to have enough talent for two Steve Smiths, just oozing out of him, but, but that has to be channeled correctly. He's as similar to A.B. De Villiers as I've seen. And what I mean by that is he's comfortable hitting off both legs. He's comfortable playing any, any shot. And that's where it becomes hard then for the people picking him because, well, once you come back to Rod Marsh, Rod Marsh wouldn't understand how, what, what makes Glenn Maxwell tick. And that's, as a coach, we have to first find out what makes Glenn tick. What does he need? What does he want? Yes, there's things that Glenn needs to do as well, but it, having someone that talented, and we haven't seen someone that talented for a while, talking absolute, just just highlighting shot shot ability, not, not on terms of... Uh, run scored or averages. He's a freak. Yeah. He's a freak. He is an absolute freak. And so that that being the case, how do we how do we manage that? And that's hard for for people to do when they have had no experience in managing of that. And that's where if you want a clone and you want Glenn Maxwell, then you're going to find that hard. Not everybody can prepare the same way. Not everybody can do the same thing. So someone like Glenn, he's just too good a player to to um, not be in the Australian one day. Well, side, he, for should example. Be, he should be in the Australian one day team. I don't understand that and. Yeah, you, know, you can you can try and break him, do what you want, but you do it at your own peril when you haven't got enough superstars to 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 compete away from home with other nations. I think part of Glenn Maxwell's success in T Twenty cricket is his ability to get his bottom hand into the shots at the last minute. He he just seems to be able to elevate the ball into the gaps at will almost, and it he makes it look so easy, but it's not easy. And yep. just we saw it in that huge innings in Sri Lanka. Just gets that bottom hand through at the last minute and finds the gap and hits it for six half the time. So, Menace, if you're right-handed and you're dominant right-handed, Glenn's dominant right-handed, why wouldn't you want to get that right hand involved more? So the old way of thinking is, no, no, come on, left elbow up, you, should, you, you dominate with your top hand. Well, Glenn's, Glenn's a freak. He's a freak fielder. He's got, he's got the best arm in Australian cricket. And that, when that right hand comes through on that ball and he, he's able to collapse his back leg and get some elevation, it's, there's no ground big enough. Well, a very interesting chat there on some of the great batting talent in Australian cricket. Thanks, Trent. I'm sure the, the listeners learned a lot about some of the talent from around the world. But we got some listener mail this week, and we, we brought it up before. We were talking about, in the last podcast, we were talking about the Neville Haddon uh, dropping in, at, in the Ashes last year. And I, I was saying that I thought Haddon should have been picked after being dropped. And I got this email from a listener. Nick, this is from Nick. Menas, my first point of concern is that you must have mental problems or at least an inability to judge players on performance when it comes to cricket. Haddon had been underperforming in all forms of cricket for over a year when he was dropped with the bat and the gloves. And then he goes on to explain how well Peter Neville did and deserved to be retained. But my point about 
and I want to talk to you now, Nick, about the Haddon v Neville thing. On purely cricket terms, Neville deserved to be retained. But my feeling is if your reputation is built upon being, you know, moulding a team that has takes into account your family and all the things going on off the field, then to discard all that in a crucial moment was unfair. So that's what I'm saying, Nick. Yes, I, I do have mental problems, but... When it comes to judging players' performance on cricket, <laughs> uh, I was taking more into account Lehman's role in that, not the cricketing result. And first, and and the last one, I got. He goes on to the email to say that finally, I think that Glenn Maxwell should be allowed to leave Victoria, but I don't see why he'd want to go to New South Wales. Not that I think he wouldn't enjoy living in any place in which the great Andrew Mensel resides, <laughs> but more that I don't think he would really fit into the sort of conditions at the SCG. What do you think about that, Trent? Do you think Maxi would thrive in New South Wales colours? I'd love to see him in the baggy blue cap. Well, as a Cricket Victoria fan, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm happy for him to be in Victoria at the moment. But, but I'm all for players being in control of their own careers, and that's where it, you know that's where it becomes difficult for for you know, around contractual decisions. But you know, it's probably a touch difficult for you to talk about yeah, when you're contracted with the Melbourne Stars. <laughs> but uh, is Melbourne Stars out of Cricket Victoria? Is that the yeah. one in the same place? Yes. The there you go. So, uh, Gav, what do you think? Do you think Maxie would do well up here? I think you'll do well everywhere. I think, as Trent said, I mean, you should have your freedom. You should go and what you want to do. You know, it's a short time span at the end of the day, and you want to get the best out of cricket. And wherever you feel it's suited there, whether that's playing CPL, whether that's going across and playing in Perth, whatever it is, if you like it, you should have the freedom to be able to do it. Yeah, I think it's going to be a pretty uh, interesting first training when Glenn Maxwell goes back to the Victorian boys. Well, what I'll say about the Victorian boys is they um, are really, really good at delivering messages to each other up front. So, uh, you know, I have no doubt that uh, Andrew McDonald is the new new leader of that team and, you know, Matthew Wade and Pete Hanscom, who's, who's captaining the Matador, they'll, they'll embrace Maxie and they'll embrace each other and any challenges, they, they're always quick to nut out. Well, if you want to get in touch with the Australian Cricket Podcast, you can email us on Gmail, ozcricketpod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, at ozcricketpod. You can find us on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. Please to the, subscribe to the show on any of the apps on iTunes, Acast, Podbean, Podomatic, Stitcher, you name a podcast app, we're on it. Uh, find the show, uh, tell your friends about it, and uh, leave some feedback on the iTunes store. Beating the batsman. Well, he's not waiting anymore. He's gone up. Oh! Bangladesh has won, but um, that might have touched the hand. But what a terrific ending. In the end, they have managed to beat South Africa by seven wickets. Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I thought I'd share the love around this week. Normally, I like to play England getting beaten in embarrassing fashion. But this week... As we're in South Africa, that was Bangladesh beating South Africa last year. They went on to win a one-day series against South Africa. History-making stuff for Bangladesh and good memories for the uh, South African fans, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, that's where Kagiso Rabada really burst onto the scene. So, But in saying that, South African fans might say, well, actually, Australia actually chickened out of the challenge in playing test matches over there. I'll let that one go through to the keeper. <laughs> I can't say anything. I was part of a New Zealand team that lost 4-0 to the Bangers in the one-day cricket. So this is actually bringing up bad memories. All right. So let, let, let's move on then. I don't want to upset you guys any further. <laughs> Australia's in South Africa now. They're playing a one-day game against Ireland. And then they play five one-day games against South Africa. There's a few things to note from this series. 
Firstly, is the lack of interest in Australia about it. And secondly, is the fact that the DRS law is changing. And we'll see. Now, I think now 50% of the ball can be hitting above 25% of the stumps. Where it used to be 50% of the ball had to hit 50% of the stumps. Mm. So I think that'll make a big difference to to decisions getting overturned. We'll see a lot less umpires call uh, in referrals. Great change. Yeah, really good change. The bowlers are very happy about that one. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Australia should uh, beat Ireland in uh, the first one-day international of their tour. That should be a bit of a walk in the park for the Aussies. Then we move on to the real real deal, which is five matches in the South Africa's backyard. What can we gain from this series over there? I think there's a fair bit, uh, especially... If you just go back to that 2013 Ashes and Jonathan Trotley's just recently uh, written a book about it and how three months prior to the whitewash here, Mitchell Johnson really put some demons in their mind. Um, I know the best bowlers aren't out there, but Steve Smith's out there and David Warner's out there. And if we can just have some mental scars before South Africa get over here, I think it's just going to sort of put South Africa into the on the back foot, and I said that, that's why I reckon this series is quite important, and I think it's right to have the best batsman there because if we can demoralise their attack of Stain and Rabada and with likes of Warner and Smith, it's just going to put that extra bit of burden on them when they come out here for the Test series. Come, I think the first week of November. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that one. I think when the tour starts, they'll be. I mean, they've won the last two Test series, haven't they, down under? So they'll be filled with confidence coming here. Yeah, I think they'll be pleased that Mitchell Stark's not playing in the one days, but that, yeah, that that might just mean that uh, yeah, as soon as they see his name in the team sheet, come come the first test, that might change. So Australia have used twenty eight players in one day cricket since last year's World Cup. So they're certainly rotating the squad around. Smith, I think, will want to do well after Warner captained the side so well in Sri Lanka. I think Smith will want to come back and win this series convincingly. Usman Khawaja has earned a reprieve. Now, he was someone that career was at the crossroads. He was left out of the test side, left out of the T20 side. He was left out of the one-day side. Now, Sean Marsh has got injured. Khawaja's been called up, so he's almost got a chance now to get some confidence before the summer. Yeah, super talent, isn't he? It, so this this is, and if you've used 28 I mean, players, this all of a sudden it creates pressure, hasn't it? So that, so the fact that 28 have played in that period of time means that there's a lot of people being looked at, so you can't you can't afford a bad series. So that the, the pressure will be right on, Aussie. I think South African wickets, though, suit his game more than Sri Lankan, Definitely. for sure. Yep. Yeah, the but it's a little bounce. bit early on in the season, and we saw during the New Zealand test they played in August, the pitches weren't quite the traditional South African tracks. They were a little bit slow. And if you just look at the composition of the South African team, I think they've got three spinners in there as well. So you wonder how... That's going to change. I th- don't think we're going to see the sort of the three twenties or the three forty scores. We might have the sort of a little bit of slow turners that South Africa started to produce more and more, um, rather than the old traditional bouncy fast wickets of South Africa. Well, Imran Tahir and Shamsi they could cause a few problems for Australia's middle order. Um, Travis Head's over there. He's got more opportunities to impress. I think he'll, with Maxi out of the side, that sort of opens up that role as bowling a few spinners and batting in the middle order. Big tour for him. But then it's the three quicks that I think everyone should be looking at. Joe Manny, Chris Tremaine and Daniel Worrell. Uh, now, Worrell's definitely at the stars, isn't he? Frankie Worrell's at the stars. Yeah, yeah he, he has a unique run-up that starts probably about 10 metres uh, left of the umpire as you look at the screen. 
he's he's someone that can bowl a heavy boy bowls at probably one forty and, and bowls genuine outswing. So I mean, I heard him saying overnight that a few years ago he was struggling to make his grade side, and now he's in the Aussie ODI side. What a journey for him! That's the beauty still of fast bowlers is that they're born, not made, and that they can appear at any time. Um, and that's that's a great thing. And Joe Minnie's been sensational. Left New South Wales and and has really worked hard to do what he's done. Same with Chris Tremaine, left New South Wales, and and I didn't pick him in an under seventeen tournament, and he wasn't too happy about. And he's proved me wrong over the years, so I'm pleased for him as well. He 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 bowls he bowls really quick, Chris. Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of watching all three these guys up in the A tour, which was going on in North Queensland. And I tell you what. Uh, Chris Tremaine's really impressive with the new ball. He's got pace. He's got a very whippy sort of action, and that makes him really hard to pick up. And he's got that laid out swing, which is what makes you that different class of bowler and really hard to pick as I a batsman. I think South African decks are going to suit him really well. Yeah. So well, you, I th- think, you think so, but if you, if you go with the spinner's take, is what, what Gav said, I reckon then someone like Scott Boland is, will still lead that attack because because he does hit the deck. I reckon he's more of an LBW candidate, um, Boland, if... If they play three spinners, then, then someone like Boland's... So I think someone like Boland's under a bit of pressure. I think uh, Tremaine, Manny and Worrell, there'd be, they'd be a spot they'd be eyeing up. I think someone that could lead the attack is John Hastings. I mean, who does the Duke play for? Stars. Stars. No, so, okay, so you can talk about this one. Uh, he's a great bowler. I mean, I think he, he's the ability to, to just come in, hits the deck hard. He's always at the batsman. Reminds me of Ryan Harris. Phenomenal, phenomenal bowler. Well, I said, I said six months ago he should be first picked for all white ball games for Australia. What about as the third quick in the test side? I think... I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I just... Just know that that one day is wherever he bowls up front through the middle at the end, you, you're going to get a, a really seasoned performer in Hastings and someone that loves the pressure. The thing I like about Hastings is you mentioned that tall man, almost six six, and those bowlers normally at the death overs struggle to bowl full, but he's someone who just knows how to go about that and produce those yorkers and the cutters. He's got all the variation, and right at the start, he just bowls that natural length. And bolts into the pitch. And we saw in Sri Lanka, even when the pitches are holding up, he makes it really difficult for the batsmen to play their, their natural game and, you know, hit through the line. So, look, I think, as you, I'm totally with you. I think John Hastings, especially looking forward maybe to the World Cup Champions Trophy on in England, he's someone that should be always in that. Oh, and his figures this year in one day cricket for Australia, yeah. outstanding. So yeah. he's made a really strong case. Him, Stark, are the two of the first bowlers picked when yep. you got... Our best team on the park. Let's talk about South Africa quickly. A.B. de Villiers is under an injury cloud, but hopefully we'll see him in the series. Dale Stane's back. He's going to be keen to impress and uh, knock a few batsmen over before the two are here. Morkel's injured, so he sits out. But then you've got Hashim Amla, Quinton de Kock, Dumini, Duplessis, Tahir, Fangizo, Shamsi, Rabada. So it's a strong squad for South Africa. I think South Africa, with A.B. de Villiers, with his injury... Will be crazy if they play him in this one day tournament. Yeah, I think get they, him right for Bangalore, uh, they, <laughs> <laughs> which is about another nine months away. But um, I think they got to get Abu is fit for the Test series. Why would you risk him in this in this one day tournament? Is beyond me. Now, last year we saw Ab De Villiers break all the one day international records. He scored a fifty and sixteen balls. He scored a hundred of thirty one balls. Amazing records. Do you guys think in these Small South African grounds, we could see these records challenged by, I guess, if he plays the man himself, by but by some of the Australians. Could we see a new world record? I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm probably leaning with Gab. I think this, it's going to be spin friendly. And I think they're, they're going to try and shut out the, the Australian quicks. 
Um, Shamsi is at Bangalore as well. Left arm um, wrist spin, I think they'll, they'll bring him into the game. So with him, with Tahir, I, I doubt maybe Joe Berg will be, be a belter, but the other grounds, I'm not so sure. And what about the man of the series for Australia? Who will be the standout player for Australia? Adam Zampa or John Hastings. Like that one. What about you, Gav? I'm going to go to the batting side. I think Steve Smith. I think he's just had that well-deserved break. And I think just if the wickets are quick, he's good. If they spin, he's brilliant. I think he's due to score some, I think, a couple of hundreds for Steve Smith. Yeah, I agree with you. I was going to say Steve Smith because I think he would particularly have been absolutely filthy with the criticism he received from coming home early from Sri Lanka. By all reports, he didn't really want to come home. So they make him come home and then the whole country gets on his back for leaving the tour. He will be out for revenge. And when we're talking about... the South African bowlers will play. Talked enough about batting menace, but... Trent's also had a big deal to work. With. I mean, he's worked a lot with Adam Zampa, so he's also played a key role in Adam Zampa's transition as well. So, I know listeners, we've been flooded Trent Woodhill as a batting expert, but he's also played coach's a key, leg spin as well. I but he closed secret, yes, spinners secret as well. talent. <laughs> you're actually the assistant coach for New South Wales for a while, so you're not just a batting coach. No, no, no. batting and fielding coach, a man of many talents. And let's get you. Let's before we end the show, let's get the predictions. What will be the result of this series in South Africa? Gav, give it to me. Give me a number. I'm, None of you sitting uh, on the fence. Okay, mate. three two Australia. Like it, Trent. Three two either way. Australia Can't in a coin, on the fence, Australia mate. in a coin toss. Australia 3-2, I like it. I'm going Australia 4-1. I think we're going to dominate. And uh, I think it's going to be a little nice little warm-up for this summer. Well, listeners, thanks for downloading the Australian Cricket Podcast this week. We didn't get to preview the Matador Cup. I don't know if anyone will be too upset about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it starts this week. Love the tournament. I did have in the notes here that... If I could spend a whole month watching the Matador Cup, I would do it because there is some great cricket played against the States, some great talent on display. We'll have a chat about that in the next show, which will probably be in a couple of weeks. Next week, I think I'm going to have the week off. Gav? Can I give you a person to look out for? Yeah. Uh, Bo Webster. I think he's going to be a superstar. I watched him. He's got really good technique. I I was all over him uh, last summer. uh, A bit of Greg Chappell. I know Trent doesn't like the word technique, but um, (laughs) but look, he looks so compact. He's got a great mind. He's a brilliant 100 against Victoria last. And he bowls a bit of off spin as well. He's from a little place called Snug in Tasmania. But I think we might... I like Webster too. Great chapel. Yeah, I think we might get um, more of him as the season. So look out for him. Not just Matador, but the Shield season. Yeah, the the actual Matador Cup sort of starts on October 1st when Queensland play the CA11, which is one of my bugbears about this comp. What do you think of the CA11, Trent? You know what? As a state coach. Well, I agree with Greg Chappell. More more games, less practice. So I'm okay with it there. But I'd franchise it. I'd put I'd put the the Matador Cup in into the big big bash teams, and get them spending longer with those players. So that way, you know, you're still having the same amount of, same amount of players playing. But you're just spreading out. Spreading the out. Bit. Yeah, I'd have the two Melbourne teams, the two Sydney teams. Yeah, it sounds like a good theory. Better than the CA11. Well, listeners, Trent, thank you so much for Thanks coming so much. on the show week. Hope we can have you back sometime. Love talk to. about cricket and batting more. It's been an absolute pleasure to pick your brain, listeners. I hope you enjoyed it. Gav, thanks for coming in as usual. Thanks, Gav. Thanks, Menace. You already picked my brains enough, Menace. Yeah, we've had enough of you. All right, (laughs) listeners, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another show and enjoy the cricket. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series. Sports Social Podcast Network.